0: Hello and welcome to the new series of Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a look at the story behind the development of mRNA vaccines and how they've been pressed into service at breakneck speed to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to the new series of Genetics Unzipped, with many thanks to the Genetics Society for supporting the podcast through 2021. We're excited to bring you new episodes every fortnight with interviews from some of the leading lights of the genetics world and stories from the history of genetic science. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you like to listen to make sure you don't miss an episode. And you can also follow us on Twitter at GeneticsUnzip to get all the latest news and updates. As we get stuck into planning our new series, we want to hear from you. What topics would you like us to explore? Who would you like us to interview? Do you have a fantastic story from the world of genetics that you'd like to share? Or are you from a company or organization interested in partnering with us for a sponsored episode that would be of interest to our many thousands of genetics curious listeners around the world? If so, Tweet us at Genetics Unzip or just email podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. Last year, we doubled our listenership, and we'd love to do that again this year. So please do spread the word by social media, email, or if you ever manage to see someone in real life. And as always, it would be great if you could leave us a rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts. It does something happy to the algorithm, and it helps more people discover the show. Now, With all of that out of the way, let's get on with the episode. Just over a year ago, in December 2019, the Chinese authorities reported a cluster of cases of a new pneumonia-like disease in the city of Wuhan. And the rest, as they say, is history. At the time of writing, that disease, COVID-19, caused by the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, has spread all over the world. More than 84 million people have been officially diagnosed, with doubtless many more having had the virus without even having symptoms. And more than 1.8 million have lost their lives. As well as the scale of the human tragedy, the effect on society has been immense. From economic, educational, cultural and social impacts to knock-on effects on health. Delayed cancer diagnoses, missed heart attacks, maternity made much more challenging and routine appointments for screening, scans, surgery, vaccinations and other vital health services cancelled or delayed. And of course, there are the mental health impacts of living through one of the most challenging eras of modern times. I don't know about you, but there's nothing I want more than for COVID-19 to go away and life to get back to some kind of normality again, or maybe even better than before. Alongside public health measures to prevent the spread of the virus, vaccination is the key to bringing the pandemic back under control. And in December 2020, we started to see the first COVID vaccines being approved in the UK, US, and other countries to great fanfare and celebration. Of the three main vaccine frontrunners authorised for use in the UK or US, two are based on mRNA. It's a technology that seems very new, and if we're being honest, a little scary, as these vaccines work by directly injecting a type of genetic code into the body. So we're going to take a look at how mRNA vaccines work, how they were developed so fast for COVID-19, and how this new technology might change the face of immunisation and public health in the future. But first, let's take a step back to the 1950s to find out what mRNA actually is, and who discovered it in the first place. You don't have to have a degree in genetics to have heard of DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid to give it its full name. Those three letters and the iconic image of the twisted double helix are found everywhere from news stories and advertising to films, fiction, and pop songs. We've talked about the discovery of the structure of DNA and the genetic code before, back in episode nine of series three, Twisted History, and in episode 16 of series one, Genetics by Numbers. And I'm pretty sure that by now you've picked up enough knowledge from all our podcasts to know that DNA is the genetic code containing the instructions for life found inside all cellular organisms, from bacteria to blue whales, as far as we know. By 1944, scientists working with bacteria had figured out that DNA was responsible for transmitting inherited characteristics from one generation to the next, and was in all likelihood the stuff that genes were made of. However, this was still viewed as a hypothesis rather than confirmed fact for a further decade or more, and many researchers still believed that genes were actually made of proteins, the molecules that make up the structure of cells and carry out all the chemical reactions of life, rather than DNA. One of the biggest stumbling blocks was the fact that while researchers working through the late 40s and 50s knew that DNA existed, and probably contained the genetic instructions telling cells to do stuff like build proteins, they couldn't see the link between the two. Even once James Watson, Francis Crick, Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins figured out the double helical structure of DNA, it still wasn't clear how it actually worked. How on earth did the information within genes get interpreted by the cell and turned into proteins, when the two seemed completely unrelated and unconnected? It was a real head-scratcher. Nonetheless, there were plenty of ideas. The notable physicist George Gamow thought that proteins might directly assemble on DNA, directed according to the specific sequence of the four molecular letters of the DNA alphabet, A, C, T and G. These are the molecular building blocks or bases, adenine, cytosine, thymine and guanine. But while it was a neat hypothesis, there was a problem. DNA is found in the nucleus, a biological bag in the middle of the cell. But most proteins are outside the nucleus, and were probably made there too. So Gamow's idea was a non-starter. Instead, scientists began to focus their attention on another component that they discovered inside cells, along with proteins and DNA. RNA. RNA ribonucleic acid is far less famous than its deoxy relative although it's chemically very similar. While DNA is double-stranded forming that famous twisted ladder, RNA is single-stranded. Imagine one half of the ladder as if it were cut straight down the middle of the rungs. Like DNA, RNA is made of a long chain of chemicals known as nucleotides with the main difference being that the sugary molecule that makes up the strut of the ladder is ribose rather than deoxyribose, and the chemical letters spelling out the sequence are A, C, G, and U, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and uracil, rather than the adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine of DNA. Importantly, RNA was found outside the cell nucleus in the cytoplasm, that's basically the gloop that contains all the stuff that isn't the nucleus. And the levels of RNA seemed to go up a lot when genes were active and lots of proteins were being made. So was this mysterious molecule the missing link between DNA and proteins? Adding to the intrigue, researchers had discovered an abundance of tiny complex particles in the cytoplasm made of protein and RNA bound together which they called ribosomes. Clearly, this was another piece of the puzzle, but there was still something missing. They had DNA, RNA, proteins and ribosomes, but no clear path of connection between them. How was the genetic information encoded within DNA read and then translated into proteins? At this point, you may wish to imagine the meme of the guy standing in front of a board plastered with pictures and red string. How on earth did it all fit together? It was Francis Crick, one of the co-discoverers of the double helical structure of DNA, who had a flash of insight that illuminated the path towards a solution. He suggested that there might be two types of RNA inside cells, a kind of template RNA inside the ribosome, which contained the unique instructions to make a particular gene. And something he referred to as an adapter RNA, which brought the building blocks of proteins, amino acids, to the ribosome and helped to connect them together. As we'll see, this wasn't quite correct, but it got people thinking about the different jobs that RNA might be doing inside cells. There were some other clues too. Throughout the 1950s, at least six research groups identified relatively short-lived RNAs inside cells that seemed to appear when genes were active. But nobody spotted the significance of these findings at the time due to the technical difficulty of studying RNA, or they simply drew incorrect conclusions from what they were seeing. Then, on the 15th of April 1960, Good Friday as it happened to be, a meeting occurred that changed Everything. The scene is King's College, Cambridge, in the rather cramped room of Sydney Brenner, a talented South African scientist who'd been recruited to Cambridge by none other than Francis Crick himself. Gathered together are a small gang of the leading lights of molecular biology at the time. They're hanging out after a conference the previous day for a bit more hot science chat. As well as Crick and Brenner, there's also François Jacob, who's come over from his lab in Paris. Jacob starts explaining to the assembled group the results of his latest experiments with his colleagues Arthur Pardy and Jacques Monod, nicknamed the Pajamo Experiments, not Pajama, as sometimes appeared. Apparently, Hardy has discovered that a gene in bacteria encoding the enzyme beta-galactosidase seems to make a mysterious transient messenger RNA molecule, referred to only as X, or X, by the French team. Brenner suddenly lets out a loud yelp as a flash of insight hits him. Jacob later wrote, Francis and Sydney leaped to their feet, began to gesticulate, to argue at top speed in great agitation. A red-faced Francis, a Sydney with bristling eyebrows. The two talked at once, all but shouting, each trying to anticipate the other, to explain to the other what had suddenly come to mind. All this at a clip that left my English far behind. The insight that so exercised the two men was the realisation that this mysterious messenger X was the missing link between genes, ribosomes and proteins. The solution was crystal clear, making sense of all the tantalising experimental clues that had been piling up over the past decade. Francis Crick described this transient messenger RNA, what we now usually refer to as mRNA, using the most advanced technology that was available at the time audio tapes. Now, if you're under 30, you might want to ask your parents to explain this next bit. Crick described mRNA as a kind of tape recording that was copied from the genetic instructions encoded within DNA, kept safe within the cell nucleus. The mRNA then goes out into the cytoplasm, where it's played back by ribosomes, analogous to a tape player which follow the recorded instructions to the letter in order to put together the relevant protein. Then, this mRNA recording is destroyed. Hence, its transient nature. Straight away, during that April afternoon in King's College, Jacob and Brenner began planning experiments that would prove this idea to be correct, carrying on their discussions that evening at one of Crick's legendary Cambridge parties. Jacob writes... A very British evening with the cream of Cambridge, an abundance of pretty girls, various kinds of drinks and pop music. Sydney and I, however, were much too busy and excited to take an active part in the festivities. It was difficult to isolate ourselves at such a brilliant, lively gathering with all the people crowding around us talking, shouting, laughing, singing, dancing. Nevertheless squeezed up next to a little table as though on a desert island we went on in the rhythm of our own excitement discussing our new model and the preparations for experiments a euphoric Sydney covered entire pages with calculations and diagrams sometimes Francis would stick his head in for a moment to explain what we had to do from time to time one of us would go off for drinks and sandwiches then our duet took off again A flurry of experimental work followed as Brenner and Jacob set about searching for mRNA, with help from geneticist Matt Meselson at Caltech in Pasadena, who had a fancy ultracentrifuge that was capable of separating out the different molecules inside cells, including mRNA. In less than a year, they had done it, isolating transient RNA messages that associated with pre-existing ribosomes to produce proteins writing up their findings in a paper they submitted to Nature. But they weren't the only people on the trail. James Watson, the other half of Watson and Crick, had assembled a team of molecular biologists in the US and France who also discovered mRNA. Even going as far as to send a cheeky telegram to Brenner in February 1961, asking him to hold back publication of their Nature paper so that Watson and his colleagues could get theirs into the same edition of the journal. Amazingly, Brenner agreed and the two papers came out back to back in May 1961. Other research groups were also making similar findings at the same time, notably Marshall Nirenberg, who went on to play a key role in deciphering the three-letter code of DNA, suggesting that even without the Good Friday meeting slash party in Cambridge, sooner or later mRNA would make itself known. Yet, despite the importance of the discovery of this molecular messenger and the multitude of Nobel prizes awarded through the 1960s for similar key advances in unravelling the mysteries of molecular biology, there has never been a Nobel for the discovery of mRNA. Brenner, Crick, Jacob and Monod are often held up as the discoverers of mRNA. But as we've heard, the true story is more complicated than a flash of insight in a Cambridge college and a few frenzied experiments. Seeing as most of this story has come from Matthew Cobb's excellent piece about the discovery of mRNA, which I've linked to in the show notes, and the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com, and also his book, Life's Greatest Secret, I'll leave it to him for the last word.
1: Textbook authors, students and Wikipedia editors generally like simple stories. A simple view of the history of mRNA would claim that Jacob and Mono named it, while Brenner, Jacob and Mieselsen subsequently isolated it. The complexity of what actually took place is much more in keeping with what we know about science. A series of different groups attack a problem using slightly different techniques, seeing the problem from different angles before eventually a breakthrough makes clear what was previously problematic. Who discovered mRNA? It's complicated. No wonder the Nobel Prize Committee did not try and reward the discovery. Naming just three or even six people would be invidious. mRNA was the product of years of work by a community of researchers gathering different kinds of evidence to solve a problem that now looks obvious but at the time was extremely difficult. But that's the nature of history. It straightens out what at the time was tangled and unclear. We have the advantage of looking backwards, knowing the answer. The participants were peering into a foggy future, trying to reconcile contradictory evidence and imagine new experiments that could resolve the problem. Their collective insights and imaginations Laid the basis for today's understanding and tomorrow's discoveries.
0: You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend? so more people can discover and enjoy the show. Our understanding of messenger RNA and the ability to study and manipulate it in the lab has come on leaps and bounds since those heady days of the 1960s. But the underlying principle remains the same. mRNA is a transient genetic message that is used by ribosomes as the instructions for making proteins. So if you can make mRNA, and you can get it into a cell, then the ribosomes in that cell will make whatever protein that mRNA encodes. And it's here that we move from the 1960s right up to today and to the story of mRNA vaccines. First, let's take a quick step back and look at what vaccines are and how they work. Cue the training montage. Vaccines are like a training exercise for the immune system. They take many forms, but the basic idea is always the same. Give someone a harmless or weakened version of a nasty infectious pathogen, like a bacteria or virus or part of it known as an antigen. This antigen triggers an immune response, including the production of special memory cells, which remember what that antigen looked like and how to respond to it. Then, when we encounter that pathogen for real, the immune system quickly swings into action to fight off the threat. Vaccines aren't perfect. They don't offer 100% protection against catching a disease. And some people aren't able to have vaccines for health reasons. So we need to have a high proportion of the population vaccinated in order to get sufficient levels of protection to keep the whole community safe from a particular disease. Over the past 200 years, vaccines have been transformative for public health around the world, saving countless lives, including millions of children. So when COVID-19 came on the scene, scientists all over the world quickly started the search for a vaccine against this new health threat, and there are currently the best part of 300 different COVID vaccine candidates of various types currently in development, with more than 60 in clinical trials. Many of these vaccine candidates are made from inactivated or weakened versions of SARS-CoV-2 itself, or other harmless viruses or virus-like particles, or proteins, all obvious kinds of antigens. The idea behind mRNA vaccines for COVID-19 is simple enough. Make an mRNA that encodes an antigen that looks like a protein in SARS-CoV-2 get it into the cells of the body so the ribosomes can make that protein so that the immune system can be trained to recognise it. mRNA vaccines might seem like a strange, newfangled idea, but they've actually been around for decades. So where did it all start? The 1980s was a time when there was a huge amount of excitement around gene therapy, often focused around putting DNA directly into cells for patients. But people were worried that DNA might get incorporated into the genome, causing problems further down the road. Because mRNA is far less stable than DNA, is quickly broken down inside cells, and can't be incorporated back into the cell's genome, it seemed like a much safer option. The idea of putting mRNA directly into cells to encode replacements for damaged or faulty proteins dates back to 1989, when researchers at a small Californian biotech company, Vical Incorporated, showed that they could smuggle functional mRNA into cells using tiny, fatty nanoparticles called liposomes. Then, in 1990, researchers at the University of Wisconsin showed that they could inject mRNA into the muscles of mice, and it would be translated into proteins. Building on this idea, others quickly suggested that as well as using mRNA for gene therapy, it might also be useful for vaccination. By 1993, researchers in France had shown that they could provoke an immune response against flu in mice using mRNA packaged inside liposomes. Watching all of this was a Hungarian researcher named Katalin Kariko, who together with her colleague Drew Weissman at the University of Pennsylvania were convinced that mRNA-based therapies were the future of medicine. But she struggled to get her research projects to work, and the funding dried up. (sighs) Synthetic mRNA just didn't behave very well. It was unstable and broke down too quickly, before it had a decent chance to be translated into proteins. Worse, putting mRNA into the body ran the risk of triggering a nasty unwanted immune reaction, potentially putting patients in danger. Just when Carico had nearly given up hope altogether, and the whole field of mRNA therapeutics was dwindling towards nothing, she and Weissman found the solution to the problem. Instead of using exactly the same four bases normally found in mRNA inside cells, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and uracil, they swapped some of them out for slightly modified versions, which could still be read in the same way by ribosomes to make proteins, but didn't set off an unwanted excessive immune response. (gasps) Yes! Published in 2005, their discovery transformed mRNA therapeutics from, nice idea but nah, into a game-changing medical technology after catching the eye of scientists who would eventually become the founders of the two leading COVID mRNA vaccine companies, BioNTech and Moderna. Over the following years, scientists refined mRNA vaccine technology, homing in on various modifications to the RNA and delivery mechanisms to make them as effective as possible at triggering a long-lasting immune response. It's this last bit, the delivery, that's been a sticking point for a long time, but this has now been solved by the development of new polymers and liposome nanoparticles that are incredibly good at smuggling mRNA into cells. Another thing that's great about mRNA vaccines is that they're relatively quick and easy to design and make, and certainly a lot simpler than trying to make a vaccine based on a pathogen itself. As soon as you've got the genetic sequence of your pathogen and have picked out the bit you think is going to be the best antigen, you then drop that sequence into your mRNA vaccine template, which has all the bits and bobs that enable it to be read by ribosomes, not be broken down too quickly inside cells, and trigger a protective immune response against the pathogen. It's also easy to add a few genetic tweaks here and there to make the antigen even more potent and trigger a better immune response there are other clever additions like mRNAs that multiply inside cells, known as self-amplifying mRNAs, which would mean that smaller doses are needed. From there, it's a case of just manufacturing lots of mRNA, something that's got a lot easier in recent years and is relatively easy to do at large scale nowadays. Then you package it up inside your nanoparticle of choice and there's your vaccine, all ready for lab testing. And if that goes well clinical trials. As a result, immunologists were getting pretty excited about the potential for mRNA vaccines to transform the future of immunisation and global health, even before the current pandemic. A 2018 review described them as a new era in vaccinology, hailing their potential as a promising alternative to conventional vaccine approaches because of their high potency, capacity for rapid development and potential for low-cost manufacture and safe administration mRNA vaccines have been tested in clinical trials against at least four infectious diseases – rabies, flu, cytomegalovirus and Zika – as well as for treating various types of cancer by stimulating the immune system, although the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna COVID vaccines are the first to make it into widespread clinical use. So what got these vaccines over the line so fast? For any new vaccine, the first challenge is to decide on the best antigen that's most likely to provoke a memorable immune response. Based on previous work with similar viruses, the spiky molecule studying the outside of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, known, obviously enough, as the spike protein, emerged as the leading antigen. To make an mRNA vaccine, the next obvious problem is getting hold of the genetic sequence encoding that spike. Thanks to the urgency of scientific research into the emerging pandemic, the genetic code of the SARS-CoV-2 virus was deciphered at breakneck speed. The first version of the virus genome was made freely available to researchers all over the world by Chinese scientists as soon as the 10th of January 2020. Within a matter of days, the teams at BioNTech, Moderna and other companies had designed their vaccines and were starting to take them through lab testing. Following promising results and good safety profiles, early-stage clinical trials followed shortly after, with both companies beginning large-scale trials in late July 2020. Both vaccines showed high levels of protection against COVID-19, providing enough data on safety and effectiveness to convince regulators in various countries that they were ready for public rollout. On the 8th of December 2020, 90-year-old Margaret Keenan from Coventry became the first person in the UK to receive a COVID vaccine on the NHS, kicking off the biggest mass vaccination programme ever undertaken in the country. It's going to take a fair old while to vaccinate everyone, and even longer to get the whole world vaccinated, but for now, we can allow ourselves to think that there might be light at the end of the tunnel. The Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines have now been authorised for emergency use in the US, and the vaccines are also being rolled out in a number of other countries. Other types of vaccines are hot on their heels, including the virus-based AstraZeneca-Oxford University jab now being rolled out in the UK, as well as vaccines developed in Russia, China and India. Given that it takes years, if not decades, to bring new vaccines to market – there's understandable suspicion about the speed at which COVID-19 vaccines have been developed, trialled and approved. Rather than skimping on safety, there are many places where time has been saved, simply by reducing the delays that normally hamper vaccine research unprecedented amounts of money and human power have been thrown at the problem, combined with the fact that the frontrunner mRNA and viral vaccines are built on tried and tested platform technology that's been in development and testing for years. Scientists moved swiftly from one phase of research to the next without having to apply for further funding and wait for it to arrive. And there's been a large number of willing participants for clinical trials at a time when the prevalence of the disease is very high, meaning that trials have hit their statistical targets quickly. From what we know so far, both of the mRNA vaccines that are being rolled out for COVID-19 seem to be safe and effective. Yes, we don't have long-term data on safety, because we can't bend the fabric of space-time. But from what we know so far, and based on previous clinical trials, the long-term safety appears to be good. And no, even though mRNA is technically genetic code, it won't alter your DNA. This is an understandable fear, As we discussed in episode 3 of our very first season, there are some RNA-based retroviruses that can integrate themselves into the genome, including HIV. But although the mRNA vaccines do encode a small bit of the coronavirus, there is no chance that they can incorporate themselves into our DNA or make any new virus. The vaccine mRNA breaks down within a couple of days inside cells, and it doesn't have the right kind of molecular passcode that would enable it to even enter the nucleus. And even if it could get in there, it also doesn't bring along the reverse transcriptase enzyme that retroviruses like HIV rely on to integrate into DNA. With any vaccine, there will be side effects and risks. But this has to be balanced against the risk of the disease itself. And we know that COVID-19 kills around 1 in every 100 people infected in wealthier countries, depending on age and underlying health. And around 1 in 20 people who fall ill with COVID-19 will experience symptoms for 8 weeks or more, with many tens of thousands likely to suffer long-term health issues. Personally speaking, I can't wait for myself and my loved ones to get our COVID jabs so that life can start to get back to some semblance of normality. We've still got a long way to go before the pandemic is under control, but it feels like the end might be in sight. I'm also excited to see what the future holds for mRNA vaccines for other diseases that cause so much death and misery around the world, now that we've had such a dramatic proof of principle that they can work and the speed at which they can be developed. There are still some technical issues to be ironed out with mRNA vaccines more generally, such as the low temperatures that are needed to store and transport them, which makes things tricky for use in countries without good cold chains and health infrastructure but they do hold great promise for global health. We can think of mRNA vaccines as a kind of plug-and-play platform technology. Once you have the genetic sequence of any pathogen, away you go. There are plenty of other diseases that could benefit from this approach. As we look forward to a year in which, hopefully, we start to get COVID-19 under control, I want to offer my heartfelt thanks to all the scientists who have worked so hard for so long, whether you're vaccine researchers, geneticists, immunologists, public health specialists, and all the rest, and to all the incredible healthcare workers and carers on the front lines. Thank you. That's all for now. Thanks very much to Matthew Cobb for his cameo appearance in the story of the discovery of mRNA. And do check out his new book about the history of neuroscience, the idea of the brain, as well as Life's Greatest Secret, his book about the race to crack the genetic code, for more fascinating insights into stories from the history of science. And you can find out more about the history of vaccination and the latest advances in the British Society for Immunology's Protecting the World Report, which was also produced by the team here at First Create the Media. The link is in the show notes at geneticsunzip.com. We'll be back next time with more tales from the cutting edge of genetics. Remember to send in your ideas for topics you'd like us to cover this year to podcast at geneticsunzip.com or tweet us at geneticsunzip. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip, and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani is produced by first create the media for the Genetics society one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research teaching and application of genetics you can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk our theme music was composed by dan pollard and the logo was designed by james mail audio production was by hannah Varrell. thanks for listening and until next time goodbye